0: Hello and welcome to my next podcast. This is Stefan Molyneux. Thank you so much for joining me as we have a look at a variety of religious questions and try and see if we can't make sense out of this sort of epistemological mess that people call religious belief. So I'd like to talk about a few things. This is the sort of second part of this examination of religious belief. The first part uh, is available, of course, um, through my feed on iTunes or or if you go to my website freedomain.blogspot.com you can uh, listen to it there i'd certainly suggest having a listen to that before you listen to this but uh, hey i'll wait while you go listen no i'm just kidding all right so um, a few of the thoughts that um, i didn't sort of stir into the mix the last time that we chatted were um, i'm sort of going to go into here And one of the first ones, of course, is the question of of monotheism. And this, uh, you know, initial question of monotheism is not specific to the uh, Christian theology, but to all monotheistic uh, religions. And, you know, the basic issue is this, which is that, you know, although there is no rational or empirical proof that some sort of divine being exists, and the very nature of a divine being, as I mentioned before, contradicts all known rational principles. You know, uh, it's, a, it's a mind without a body, and it's a it's life without death, and, and it's existence without creation, like life existence without creation, and so on. And uh, even if we accept all of that and say that beings can exist which have no corporeal... Um, physiology, and they're eternal, and they're invisible, and they can't be detected by any uh, known methodology, and so on, then, um, uh, of course, the question then becomes, well, um, how do we know that only one of them exists? I mean, if it is simply a matter of uh, faith, or belief, or some sort of inspiration, then we can, of course, see throughout history that um, uh, there have been many religions with, with multiple uh, deities. So, if there was only one God, then you would assume that one of the ways that you would test for that hypothesis, the hypothesis that there is only one God, would be to look throughout history and say, well, you know, uh, if, there were, uh, if there was no such thing as God, we would expect an enormous variety in uh, religious beliefs and if there was a central deity uh, that was communicating to people then we would assume that there would be a uh, a sort of a paucity of diversity in, in fixed beliefs about religion. So of course as we look both across the world and throughout history we can see that the evidence is not good for the case of God, insofar as, of course, we can see many religions which have uh, many uh, different forms of deity. I mean, the, the Indian religions with with uh, Shiva and Vishnu and all these other gods, there is, uh, the, of course, the ancient Greek religion with Zeus and Apollo and, and, and Hera uh, uh, and all these sorts of characters, uh, the Roman religions... Um, And so, you know, there really is no uh, logical reason to believe that even if we cast rationality and empiricism to the winds and say, okay, we accept the existence of the possibility of an invisible deity uh, or an invisible, eternal, all-knowing form of life, there's absolutely no reason to believe that there's only one of them, even if we accept the premise and uh, if there was only one God who spoke to human beings, then we would expect that there would be a similarity of belief across mankind's and throughout history. And of course, there's you know a ridiculous diversity of uh, religious beliefs. Uh, you know, from the cat-headed gods of the ancient Egyptians to this sort of three-in-one uh, God of the of the Catholics and. And you know all the saints, and then the, the Indian religions, and the sort of uh, these sort of anthropomorphic uh, Roman and Greek religions, and and atheism, and you know there's nature worship, there's this druidic uh, religions, there is Satanism, there is you know everything that you can imagine. Uh, somebody has probably worshipped at some point or another. So uh the idea that there's only one god uh is is not at all rational even if we accept the idea that gods do exist and of course Uh, it is further disproven by the fact that if there was only one God, we would expect some sort of similarity in religious beliefs. And, you know, there really isn't any similarity in religious beliefs across cultures and across times. So this does not speak well towards the existence of either one God or, you know, any gods uh, at all. Now, an argument that I've heard from a Christian uh, and this this may be common to other belief systems, I don't know. But an argument that I've heard from a Christian uh, is a young gentleman um, named uh, Adam, as you can well imagine, uh, was telling me uh, the following sort of uh, what he considered a, a suggestive proof towards the divinity of Jesus Christ. Um, and that was that something must have occurred that people felt... Um, was divine when Christ was alive, because they uh, the people who saw his his miracles or his his person or his you know perhaps his resurrection and so on they um, must have seen something divine because they were put to death for it they you know they fought and you know they risked persecution and they risked mutilation and torture and crucifixion and all of this sort of mess. And therefore, uh, given that it would not be uh, particularly rational for a human being to pursue these things in the absence of seeing something extraordinary and divine that that would at least suggest that something very unusual was going on uh, throughout uh, you know christ 's life and in the presence of those uh, who saw him and uh, i mean <laughs> i 'm fairly sure this is offensive to many people, but you know I simply look at this. Uh, through a sort of rational uh, perspective, and I try to disassociate myself from the emotional overtones uh, that, you know, everybody who lives in the West has grown up around the divinity of of, uh, of Christ and, and, and you know, the Christian God and so on. And so I sort of sit myself in this sort of, not exactly cold, but definitely uh, non-mythical, uh, rational chair, and, and this is sort of what I see, that if... The um, the desire uh, or the the ability to die for a belief uh, proves the divinity or suggests the divinity the divinity of uh, you know what is believed in. Then you know if you cast your mind back a few years to these you know nut jobs who cut off their own testicles and killed themselves to go and join the comet that was floating past. Then you know this would of course also uh, be an argument for the divinity of that comet because. Uh, I mean the Christians suffered uh, persecution at the hands of the Romans um, and you know these guys persecuted themselves, which in a sense is even more. Um, I mean, you can get away from the Romans or evade them, but you can't get away from your own hand, a knife, and a, a you know a good chopping block. So it could be said that these uh, these comet worshippers were, uh, in fact, uh, that the, the comet was more divine uh, than Christ because they went to even further extremes. So I don't see that it's any sort of argument to say that well something must have gone on, uh, otherwise, you know why would people believe it? Uh, similarly, you can't uh, even remotely uh, talk about, you know, and say, well, so many people believe in religion and, and, you know, it's common experience the world over and, you know, throughout history and therefore there must be something. Um, that is, I mean, that's ridiculous. Uh, and the reason that it's ridiculous is because children are bullied into believing in religion. Um, I myself was, mm, I wouldn't say bullied. Uh, definitely there was a lot of social pressure to be religious when I was a child. And uh, I was uh, in a boarding school in England where, you know, we went to church a couple of times a week. And, you know, we had preachers who, you know, I I think were on the most part dull. Uh, (laughs) I do remember one fairly young guy came through one day and said he sort of, uh, you know, gave the Milton-esque story this way that, that God threw the devil in a pond and put up a big sign saying no fishing, which I thought was cute. You know, I was, Six or seven years old when I first uh, heard that in boarding school, and I guess I thought it was kind of cute. I did sort of find it a little weird that we had to dress up so much to go to worship a god uh, who said, you know, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, Christ says, all who would follow me, cast off your worldly possessions, and blah, blah, blah. So I did find it rather odd that we had to dress to the nines to go and worship the god of poverty. But um, (laughs) I guess I didn't really reason it through much at that time. But, uh, you know, to say that the common uh, nature of, uh, you know, mankind's belief in, in a deity indicates that such a deity exists uh, is, you know, completely ridiculous because, as I mentioned in my last podcast uh, on this topic, the way to test that would be to raise a child with no indication of religion whatsoever and answer their questions about the origins of things uh, in a scientific manner and then see if they came up with things like a three-day resurrection and, uh, you know, a virgin birth and, you know, all of these mistranslation nonsenses that that came out of, uh, you know, this, this, ancient, uh, uh, this uh, ancient Hebrew text. And, you know, if you raised a bunch of kids that way and they came up with those beliefs, then there would be some indication either of a collective unconscious or some sort of outside influence, which could be uh, a deity, whether or not there would be anything to worship and whether it would answer prayers. I mean, all would be unknown. But, you know, the reason that the belief in, um, uh, in religion is so universal is because uh, children are coerced and forced and bullied and punished and, f- and frightened into believing in religion. So, you know, it's it, to me it would be similar. So it's a kind of conformity uh, and, and ignorance of the rational arguments against, you know, the existence of this sort of big sky ghost that uh, uh, is what keeps people believing in this stuff. I mean, it would be equivalent to saying that, you know, there must be something in this flat earth theory because, you know, by golly, for tens of thousands of years people believed that the world was flat. Uh, well, they just, uh, you know, they didn't know any better. Uh, and so that was uh, you know that 's what uh, that 's what they believed in, and that 's why so to go, go to another point, um, I would say that I have a certain amount uh, of sympathy uh, towards uh, i have an enormous amount of sympathy towards children who are bullied and frightened into uh, religious belief, particularly those children. Who are faced with you know the the unbelievable and violent social pressure uh, within the Muslim uh, worlds and within the, uh, the those those uh, sort of uh, uh, no separation of church and state societies at least in the west there 's a little bit of breathing room where you can uh, look to explore the ideas a little bit more openly, um, but you know in the theological societies it is just rampant child abuse this this uh, uh, communication of this this infinite powerful destructive uh, punitive deity i mean it 's just unbelievable what it does to children 's minds, so I have an enormous amount of, of, of sympathy for children and i uh, who is subjected to this these beliefs I have some uh, a good deal less sympathy of course to people who uh, should know better, who have the capacity to uh, you know, open their eyes, look around the world and see that the existence of a deity would, is, is in no way evident and you know, it's important to give up superstition and prejudice so that the human species can advance and stop, you know, collapsing into these orgies of self-destruction that consume societies at the end of their life cycle. But I will say that the capacity for human beings to reject the evidence of their senses is a pretty important part of the human mind and in a sense right down at the root uh, science and religion thus have the same uh, origin you can't I mean if you're not a human being you know, a goldfish or a, a puppy or something you really don't have the option to reject the um, the evidence of your senses uh, so you know I imagine if you put a dog in a desert and it can see a mirage it's going to keep running towards that mirage uh, I mean at some point it may give up but it won't be able to sort of reason while well it's light waves bouncing between differently heated layers of atmosphere or anything so, you know, the fact that we're able to reject the evidence of our senses is pretty crucial in in our the development of of the human mind and of human knowledge. So, I mean, an obvious example is that the world looks flat, but you have to reject the evidence of your senses and recognize that it's round. Uh similarly, the the sun and the moon, you know, they both look about the same size, it's sort of a dime's uh, a, di- a dime held at arm's length. And during an eclipse, you can see well by golly they are uh the same size because they cover each other perfectly. Um, but of course, the sun is many, many hundreds of times larger than the moon, despite what our, our senses tell us. Um, I mean, there's 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 tons of other ones that that you can think of. I'm sure, um, wherein uh, you know, rejecting the evidence of the senses is in fact the route to knowledge. I mean, the fact that we are going, or, that we are moving, and uh, <laughs> the sun relative, it, it relatively is not, um, is certainly not what our senses tell us i mean our senses tell us that we're stuck still and the sun is being pulled across the sky by a roman chariot guard of course um so the ability to reject the evidence of the senses is very uh key to developing some knowledge about uh, the universe right the ability to reject limited and localized sensual evidence uh, for the sake of uh, generalized and universal scientific principles is um you know very important uh so yeah, i can certainly see how you know whatever mental paroxysm the cromanian man went through which produced the ability to reject the senses opened up this sort of pandora's box of religious nightmarish uh, co- concepts which at the very bottom as in the pandora uh, myth is the little fairy of science uh, which you know uh, uh, puts all the rest of it uh, away so i certainly do understand the capacity of the mind to reject the evidence of the senses and how that initially leads to something like a god, right? You believe in something which, uh, for which there is no evidence in your senses. But um, the rejection of the senses, of course, should only be done on the basis of empirical verification and rationality, not uh, you know, because you want to be taken care of and think that you're going to meet the people you love uh, after they die. And of course, one of the more uh, important uh, I guess axioms in uh, in the religious framework or in the religious mind mindset or worldview is the idea that um, well i i really 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 believe in god and i i mean I guess I sympathize to to a small degree you know because for me religious belief is a form of scar tissue that comes out of social punishment um, so you know we all grow up desperately wanting to believe that our parents and society is good, you know, because if it's not, then, you know, we have some pretty tough choices ahead of us, right? We, we either ignore that society is, is pretty corrupt and, and teaches children all the wrong things, in which case we kind of have to step outside the social bubble, uh, which is, is very hard, uh, as, as anybody who's a committed and, and vocal libertarian or atheist knows, um, but, of course, in the same way that we have the capacity to reject the evidence of the senses, which can lead to science, uh, we also have the capacity to reject social convention, which leads uh, to progress, uh, if it's, you know, well thought out. Um, you know, I certainly view myself as a sort of random gene in the social body, uh, simply because, you know, in my sort of 20 to 20 Five odd years of talking about this stuff, I, I've met, you know, except for my wife, almost nobody uh, who, uh, you know, can follow this to, to any particular degree. And it's not because it's so hard uh, to figure out, uh, simply because it's, you know, it just goes against everything that they're trained to believe in. So you know the the social organism, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> takes care of its own and wraps around its own and blinds everyone who's who's part of it. Um, but you know there are there are people like myself and and perhaps yourself, who are standing out fr- outside of the illusions that everybody's trapped in. You know this sort of glossy cage of social convention, and we are the random gene uh, through which society. Um, uh, progresses or, or evolves uh, in the same way that, you know, certain genes within biology will cause a species to to evolve. And, you know, evolving is really adapting to reality and, and human beings are really not very well adapted to reality at the moment because, you know, social convention and religion and, and nationalism and all this sort of nonsense, um, it just completely blinds people to the facts of, of life and the, the true honor and virtue of life. So, you know, I certainly do have some sympathy towards those who have been um, you know, scarred and broken by these religious this religious bullying, uh, but um, you know, it however difficult it is, anybody who claims to have any kind of intellectual integrity or who claims to have any right to say what people should do, um, it does have the absolute responsibility to learn as much as possible about the facts of existence and of life and of truth because if you say what the good is or what people should do or what's right uh, and you're not correct then you really are uh, destroying the capacity of those around you to, to be rational, to be happy and to be free. So this religious passion, I fully understand it. I do sympathize with it um, but it is something that you know it has to be uh, grimly opposed, you know, the, the fact that somebody believes something very passionately has absolutely nothing to do with how valid their belief is. Um, I, may, <laughs> I may root for a particular sports team, you know, if I was at all inclined towards rooting for any sports team, which I've never really had much luck getting interested in, although I love sports. Um, if I were rooting and, and passionately and desperately, uh, you know, believed that my sports team were the best, uh, it would have absolutely no effect on their uh, their chances. I don't believe there's any sort of universal tsunami karma that you can everybody can get enthusiastic about and change the nature of reality so a passionate belief has absolutely nothing to do with the validity of that belief so uh, for instance and this is not something that religious people generally like to hear but epistemologically it's sound if um, if I believe that say uh, all orientals are thieves then, uh, and I passionately believe that, and I have a whole, you know, horrible little website devoted to my racism, then, uh, you know, the fact that I passionately believe it, in no way determines uh, the validity of that belief. If I say that it is moral to believe that all Orientals are thieves, and uh, anybody who doesn't believe that is is going to be punished in, in some sort of eternal hellfire after they die, and you know uh, it's 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 virtuous to to believe in it and uh, uh, you know uh, i'm very passionate about it and, and this is what i really care about it has absolutely nothing to do with with the facts right i can choose to reject the simple fact that you know very few orientals are thieves in the same way that you know very few of, of any people are thieves who aren't necessarily working for the state but my particular belief i i can choose to reject all of that empirical or sensual evidence about Orientals and, and claim virtue for my belief, which is absolutely identical to saying that you believe in a deity and rejecting all evidence to the contrary, and just saying that that uh, my belief is is virtuous and that's why the deity must exist. Okay, so let's look at one or two other issues uh, before wrapping up the whole uh, the whole case of God and uh, hopefully uh, helping us to uh, uh, to flush it into the dustbin of history. Uh, one of the other things that I would like to talk about. Is that the question about uh, morality? Because of course, religion rests on the principle of morality. That that the you know, say, a Christian claims to know that uh, one cannot be moral without a belief in the divinity and, and obedience to the edicts of Jesus Christ, and so on. But for those who have been following this question of the argument for morality, um, which is also available in one of these fine podcasts. Um, you will understand that you can't claim a moral axiom that is not valid for all people for all time. And therefore, I guess I have a slight logical bone to pick with the Christians, because I would view Socrates as a pretty moral fellow. I wouldn't say that he was necessarily the most consistent of all thinkers, uh, but certainly pretty much one of the most consistent of the ancient world. But, uh, you know, the, the man did not kill, he did not rape, he did not steal, he did not uh, set fire to things, you know, he didn't, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, well, I guess he went to war, uh, <laughs> which wasn't so good, because, you know, that sort of puts him in the Winston Churchill mercenary uh, camp. Uh, but, you know, overall, I would say that in terms of, of his philosophical life, uh, he was a pretty good guy. And, of course, so was Aristotle and and, and Plato, uh, mentally corrupt, but, you know, not an evil man. Um, But, of course, the problem is that these people all lived before the birth of Christ. And so, one of the logical problems that any sort of um, uh, prophet-based religion faces is the question of what happens to the people who lived before that prophet was born, Right, I mean that's that's fairly important. That's a fairly important criteria. Um, so, a Christian, if he believes that um, a belief in the divinity and following the edicts of Jesus Christ is the only thing that gets you into heaven, and otherwise you get burned in hellfire for eternity, has to then answer the question of everybody who was uh, born before uh, the birth of Jesus Christ that they're all going, uh, that they're all evil and there's no capacity for them to redeem their souls. Or they have to say they don't have souls, which is obviously a little odd, because we're supposed to be made in God's image. Um, Or, you know, there's there's a lot of gray areas here, like what if you were passing by the Sermon on the Mount at a sort of middle distance, and you couldn't quite make out what Christ was saying. Well, if you'd been sort of ten feet closer to Christ, you would have heard what he was saying, and would then have been able to live your life according to his edicts. But if you're 10 feet further away, uh, you don't hear what he's saying, and then you have, of course, no capacity to live according to his edicts. What about uh, people uh, who couldn't read uh, and didn't have access to a Bible and and so on, uh, even after Christ's uh, story was written down, uh, then, uh, of course, they don't uh, um, They don't have the capacity to go to heaven and to be good, and so you have a lot of pretty localized morality, right? Uh, there's people who live in the jungle in Borneo who've never heard of Jesus Christ, uh, and, you know, they obviously then have no capacity to go to heaven. Uh, so it is rather hard to understand how you have such a localized morality that you have to uh, you know, have heard and understand, understood this message, and, and you have to live right. And everybody who was born before Christ doesn't get to go to heaven, and everybody who was born after Christ does, as long as they've heard about Christ and can speak the language of the preachers and don't get misinformed by uh, by anybody, and so on. So uh, that has a particular problem. The argument for morality says that if you have a moral rule, it has to be valid for all people for all time, and you know, Christianity completely fails. Uh, on that, uh, on that score. Uh, And I guess one other thing too, I mean, there's so many contradictions inherent in the nature of Christianity, and I'm sure there are in other religions too, it's just that I haven't, uh, you know, bothered my pretty little head to study them too much, so, uh, you know, if you know of them, please, please let me know, and I'll be happy to record part three of this. But, you know, you you would expect that if Christ were divine, that he would utter, utter no falsehoods, right? And, um, therefore, you know, when he says, uh, as he is being crucified, uh, there are those among you who will not taste death before I return. Uh, No, I'm sorry, I think that was after he was resurrected. There are those among you who will not not taste of death before I return in all my glory. Well, uh, you know, they're all dead, and, you know, the dude hasn't come back. And so I think it's fairly safe to say that this was an incorrect statement uh, on his... On his behalf, I mean, there's just there's many many uh, of these in the Bible, um, but uh, you know it really only takes one. I mean, if if God is omniscient and all uh, all powerful, then he can certainly send his uh, his kid back to mankind uh, before people have died who are listening to him. And you know, I guess a little over two thousand years later, um, you know, we're still waiting. They're all dead, and therefore, you know, obviously this is not omniscience uh, that is speaking. Uh, and, of course, it's it's fine to say that, you know, everything's abstract and it's a metaphor for the death of Western society and so on. But, you know, that's not what he said. I mean, you can make up anything, right? Yeah, he was talking about uh, a cloud formation that is still circling the earth. I mean, but, you know, that's what he said, you know. Now, of course, people will say that was mistranslated, uh, misunderstood, uh, you know, that everything was written down 200 years after Christ's death and so on. But, um, you know, all that means is that the book is not divinely inspired. And as anybody who's studied history knows, 200 years in a society without uh, transcripted uh, interviews and videos and, you know, fabulous things like podcasts, um, you know, (laughs) the truth gets just a tad distorted over 200 years of retelling, especially when there's an enormous amount of political and religious power uh, dependent upon the recasting of some preacher as the son of God. So uh, that's, uh, you know, the fact that uh, he may have been mistranslated and this and so on. All it means is that, you know, we then have no idea uh, what the facts of the story are. I mean, if you ever play a game of uh, uh, secrets or whispers, you know, where you sort of have a group of people sitting around, you whisper something in one person's ear and it comes back to you, it's not even close to the same. Um, and I sort of remember the very first um, day that I was in university um, at uh, Glendon, which was a campus of York University in Canada. Uh, I was sitting in the front row, and I was taking a course in Canadian history, God help me, and um, the the professor, uh, she, she sort of, um, you know, I had my hand up, I was I was a keener, because this was before I ran into the rotating blades of mental disintegration that <laughs> higher academia is for anybody who thinks for themselves. So I was keener, sitting up front asking questions, and then at one point the teacher turned and hurled her glasses at me. And you know, I, I, I guess I've always had fairly good reflexes, so I caught them. And then she turned uh, and said to the class as a whole, uh, what just happened? and she said that I couldn't answer right so that's fine and man it was amazing you should uh, you couldn't believe the number of uh, of different stories that came out about what happened that she had sneezed, that I had thrown something at her, that she had dropped something, that I had, you know, dropped something off my desk, that nothing had happened, that, you know, (laughs) what is happening (laughs) for people who'd been dozing in the back? Um, And this is something that people were eyewitness to. And, you know, they could not consistently report on what had happened. uh, And this is about 10 seconds after the event when everybody's supposed to be watching the teacher. So, you know, if... And then this was with no political or economic or religious pressure being brought to bear on the on the topic, so if you know a group of say fifty people can 't record ten seconds after what something that happened uh, consistently, then one could uh, for sure say that two hundred years after something has happened this, this, you know what is being told has absolutely no relationship to um, to what actually did happen, and there's absolutely no way to know uh, what actually did happen. Um, for those who, you know, have done a little bit of research into this, this the last point I'll make on this is probably well known, but for those who don't, it may be interesting. Uh, the the virgin birth uh, is, uh, you know, despite the fact that it's screwed up generations of Italian men, uh, is also one, one of the things that's supposed to have resulted from a mistranslation that the ancient Hebrew word for a virgin and young maiden were very similar. And so, you know, Christ's mother was a young maiden, but it got mistranslated as a virgin And, uh, you know, uh, next thing you know, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Catholic men, uh, uh, you know, have this sort of Madonna whore complex. So, you know, these kinds of things are, you know, just just foolish mythologies, right? I mean, a virgin birth, please. Um, (laughs) It really doesn't make any sense. Although I got to tell you, uh, if you knocked up your girlfriend and you could convince somebody that it was a virgin birth, uh, that may be divine because being able to convince people that you know you didn't have sex with her and nobody did she just happened to get pregnant by uh, uh, you know some visiting angel uh, I gotta tell you that's that's a pretty cool uh, story to tell and the fact that you're believed uh, you know is indication of a society that's gullible enough to believe in things like loaves and fishes and walking on water and you know all this other kind of nonsense so okay we can uh, I think take one more swing at the last aspect of this, Uh, unless, of course, uh, any other thoughts strike me, (laughs) in which case I'll keep going in those tangents. But, um, you know, the the question of evil, of course, is, you know, something that all religions, you know, have to, you know, put a big junk of squid ink all over because, you know, a, a perfect God... Um, who creates a perfect world, which is then infested with things like plagues and sores and storms and murderers, and you know, especially in, in of course, the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, where life was just an unbelievable sequence of horrors. It is rather hard to say, you know, what what may have gone wrong. I mean, if I claim to be the most perfect house builder in the world, and the house I put up. Is full of mildew and rot and slanted floors and holes in the walls, and it you know it keeps having to get patched up. Then, of course, it may be perfectly valid to question, uh, you know, what exactly is my criteria for being the best builder. So, the question of evil, uh, which we talked about briefly in the last podcast, um, and just to reiterate what was in there, the question of evil is interesting because. You know, people say God is not interventionist, that we have free will, but of course, God is interventionist in every single religion, uh, and that's simply axiomatic. If God was not interventionist, then there would be no such thing as religion, because we wouldn't know that God existed, (laughs) because he really, really wouldn't intervene, Um, you know, the same way that... um, uh, I just watched March of the Penguins, the same way the penguins don't know that I exist. (laughs) you know, we we would have no idea that God exists because he really wouldn't intervene. So God does intervene. And because because God does intervene and God doesn't do anything to help the the suffering and the meek and and those who are sick and those who are victims of evil, uh, then, you know, of course, God is morally culpable by God's own moral rules, you know, as in the example of the Good Samaritan. But um, the question of of intervention is is interesting, uh, as is the question of uh, the source of evil. Uh, so, you know, uh, all, all religions um, from, I mean, Zoroastrianism is, is very much along this way that the forces of good, uh, the deific forces of good, are sort of on one side and the the godlike forces of evil are on the other side and it's human beings who choose which one wins through their dedication to good or evil, whatever, right? Uh, in the Christian mythology, the uh, structure is a little different. Uh, God is all-powerful and... God is all-knowing, but somehow God didn't quite figure out that Lucifer was going to turn on him. Uh, Again, this is just the sort of normal contradictions that you expect from, you know, the ravings of, you know, starvation-addled lunatic monks from, you know, the late Roman Empire. But, uh, I mean, it's all just such nonsense, right? I mean, if I claim to be all-knowing and then I create a being second only to me who then turns against me and leads legions of angels into the pits of hell and then begins corrupting mankind and I don't do anything to stop uh, that, then, you know, obviously my claim to being all-powerful and all-knowing might be subject to a little bit more critical scrutiny than it is. So, you know, the fact that God creates Lucifer chief among angels and uh, second only to himself, only to have Lucifer turn on him uh, and wage a war against heaven, which, you know, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) is really silly too, because, you know, Lucifer uh, is far more intelligent than human beings. I mean, he is second only to God in knowledge and power. And we know that God is all-powerful and all-knowing. So we can kind of assume that, given that Lucifer is almost infinitely more intelligent than we are, that Lucifer also knows that God is all-powerful and all-knowing, yet, uh, for some reason, he still decides to try and fight him. Um, Which, of course, is completely insane. You know, I don't get a lot of termites squaring off against me, and I don't really understand why... Uh, Lucifer, who's had direct experience of God and knows of his all-powerful, all-knowing ways, decides to try and fight heaven, uh, you know, which is obviously completely impossible, right? God could choose to undo uh, Lucifer's existence with the snap of a finger, um, or, you know, just change his mind to be back to, you know, the, the loving, created being that he was originally, uh, so I mean, it's all just—it's all just complete made-up nonsense. Uh, not even particularly well thought out as a novel or a, as any sort of plot. I mean, if you saw this kind of stuff in a movie, right? The first thing you'd say is, "Well, why? Why would he even fight? You know, h- how come God didn't know this was going to happen? I mean, it wouldn't even be a good sitcom, let alone the basis for a universal world morality. So you know, that's sort of one example of of how foolish this is. The second example is, of course, that. God claims to be non-interventionist and to give us free will. Um, And God, in the Christian mythology at least, doesn't sort of swoop down and and make us do good things and tempt us with goodness, so to speak. But the devil has a completely free hand to tempt human beings with all sorts of evil and perfidy and treason and so on. And I mean, this is obviously such a biased experiment that there's no way that you could call any kind of deity who allowed that, you know, non-interventionist, right? It would be like if I was, uh, I put up a, a sort of a lab a lab experiment to test the health of something while allowing my lab assistants to poison the rats and then say, well, gee, a lot of the rats seem to be getting sick. <laughs> I wonder how that could be explained. <laughs> I mean, of course, that's, that's completely uh, uh, nonsensical. Uh, to allow the devil to tempt human beings and then claim that there's such a thing as free will and I don't intervene in the world because I'm above it all, says God. I mean, that all just uh, is complete nonsense and makes no sense at all. Now, there are, of course, many um, Christian uh, theologians who have, and this may be true in other religions as well, I know it's somewhat true in Christian um, theology, who have abandoned things like... um, uh, hell, and, and, you know, the, the sort of intervention of the devil, and and so on. Um, you know, and this is sort of the people who say it's akin to the idea that the Constitution is a living document. Um, the idea that you can just say, you know what, we, we don't really believe in hell anymore um, is just, I mean, it's contemptible nonsense is what it is. You know, I would have far more respect for theologians if they you know, thumped the table and screamed hellfire at me than this sort of mealy-mouthed abandoning of their religion's greatest premises just to sort of uh, slither into bed with some of the secular humanism that's come around in the past half-century. Um, uh, I certainly prefer intellectual opponents who remain consistent to their beliefs so that they can be more effectively ridiculed for the foolishness that they believe. But when they start changing their minds, and despite about 8 million references to hell, hellfire, damnation, and this and that and the other in the Christian Bible, then, um, uh, you know, they, they change their mind and say, well, we don't really subscribe to the idea of hell anymore. You know, which, of course, begs the question, well, why? Why not? Did God visit you and tell you that there was no such thing as hell? In which case, why did God say that there was such a thing as hell? Um, One would assume that an all-powerful and all-moral being would not be prone to creating lies that cause night terrors for 2,000 years worth of children. Uh, So why would God have said that there was hell if there was no such thing as hell? and if the theologians have just decided that there's no such thing as hell then aren't they in fact evil because god says that there is and so if they don't believe in the word of god then they're not following the teachings of the one true being then they're actually just evil or they're just making things up uh so i don't believe any theologians have said that they themselves have gotten divine revelations about whether or not there's such a thing as hell i just think it's sort of fallen out of favor Because what's happened is a number of psychologists have begun to, uh, or have uh, over the last couple of generations, begun to talk about how destructive it is to hold a child's soul over this roasting coals of infinite torture as a way of getting them to believe stuff that's just nonsensical. So then they're like, well, okay, the hellfire thing isn't going down too well these days, so let's just change it. We'll just change it to... um, to well there 's not so much uh, really hell uh, you know and just throwing away two thousand years of of terrifying the be- Jesus out of children, uh, which is completely contemptible i mean if you 're going to be uh, a priest or a religious authority, then stand by your book and if you 're not then have the the sense and integrity to become an atheist but don 't just keep changing your story i mean that 's ridiculous um, and of course. <laughs> If there is a God, right? Then then uh, these people uh, are evil, and and you know the, the whole church should, who says who says this churches who refine any sort of biblical teachings should um, uh, should be you know abandoned and damned and shut their doors and say, oh my God, I'm so sorry, we were wrong. Uh, you know we we have no right to tell anyone what to do. Just as you know churches who hear about things like pedophilia and don't do anything about it should, of course, turn in their cassocks and go get gainful employment somewhere. Um, But if there was no God, and if it was all just, you know, basically cash-laden fairy tales, you know, like I I tell you all of this stuff and then you give me money, uh, then you would expect that as church attendance went down, that the stories would change uh, in order to um, get people to come back. So, if something like hell fell out of favor with people, then if there was no such thing as God and it was all just a load of nonsense, a charlatanry, uh, just a load of, of, of evil and corrupt uh, moral bullying, uh, when people no longer took to that moral bullying and began to view it as, you know, anachronistic and, and, and horrible, then, you know, you would expect that in order to keep the cash coming, the story would change to further appeal. Uh, to those who are drifting away and that is of course exactly what you do see so you know it doesn't really matter which way you come at this question of religion um, and of course in particular organized religion although it doesn't matter i mean whether it's organized or not it's still equally false no matter which way you come at it the evidence always points to the same thing people make up frightening stories to terrify children and thus bind them in for life people create these socially empty structures like church and community and culture, and thus uh, and then threaten to bully people and throw them out of this community should they ever question anything. And the reason that they do this is because they get pretty well paid for doing it, right? I mean, if you get to uh, be a priest, you can make a fairly comfortable middle-class income and be sort of the respected heart of your society just by learning a couple of old, world, old words and wearing funny hats. So it's not too bad an occupation for a particular kind of con artist, but it's nothing that, uh, you know, real philosophers should have any patience with uh, and and pull any punches with identifying the facts of the matter, which is that religion is is just a con which is designed to to bully children, uh, to frighten adults, and to ostracize anybody who has the temerity to ask any kind of rational question. And they do all of this in return for money and power. So it is pretty sick evil and corrupt uh... uh mode of thinking uh, something which causes an enormous amount of suffering in the world not just physical uh... but emotional suffering in particular uh... and so this is one of the reasons why when it comes to this question i really pull no punches and feel no sympathy for people's beliefs that get exposed as as false because uh... i would be much more uh, lenient towards religion uh... if if two things didn't didn't occur if um, I'd be much more lenient towards religion if it wasn't so freaking pompous, if it wasn't so, well, this is the way, and smarmy, and, you know, if you don't believe this, you're wrong, and, and you're just a bad guy, and no, no rational argument, just ad hominem, then I would be a lot more patient with it, but as you know, if you've heard one of my previous podcasts, I deal with people as pleasantly as I possibly can and as respectfully as, poss- as I possibly can the first time that I deal with them. And after that, I deal with them exactly as they deal with me. So religion is incredibly pompous. It struts around saying, this is the right thing to do. This is the right approach. We have the universal truth. We know everything. And of course, they've never learned a damn thing in their life. All they've done is looked it up in a book that's mistranslated nonsense from crazed monks, you know, thousands of years ago. Scarcely a, a, a valid foundation for knowledge. Um, the, the degree of violence that is is, is put forward and, and supported in the world by religion is just astounding. I mean, and anybody who thinks that there's any kind of moral truth towards religion should just go uh, to the Middle East and live there for a couple of years and see how well uh, religion fosters peace and goodwill between mankind. Um, and last but not least, uh, religion, uh, and I speak particularly of the Old Testament religions here, right, the the Muslim, the Jewish, and the Christian religions, um, you know, they openly advocate my death. They openly advocate my murder. They openly advocate death to people who question death to heretics, death to unbelievers, death to blasphemers. And I really do not have any patience or any moral sympathy with religion because it counsels that I be killed for thinking for myself and for asking perfectly sensible questions about the validity of these beliefs. So... I would certainly suggest that if you find no fault with these arguments, that you uh, be perfectly frank and open with religious people and tell them exactly what sort of horror it is that they're preaching and they're believing. And if they have any, any questions or issues with you, just remind them that a, an atheist has a perfect right to look at as a religious person Uh, just as a black does to look at a Ku Klux Klan member, because those people who organize and openly advocate your destruction should not be given any quarter or any place to hide when it comes to a rigorous examination of their beliefs. So I hope this has been helpful. We've made it to 47 minutes. Uh, Thank you very much, and uh, I look forward to your feedback. Thank you.